Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. They've basically given LNG Canada whatever they want. Um, frankly, I'm surprised they haven't given, given them promises of their second and third children as well. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, welcome to another podcast. That is the voice of Green Party leader Andrew Weaver talking about this big, this week's big tax announcement on liquefied natural gas from John Horgan's NDP government. And Rob Shaw, uh, John uh, Andrew Weaver, not very happy with his governing partners in the NDP about this uh, LNG, uh, what he clearly thinks is kind of a sweetheart deal for the industry. Yeah, we saw this one coming. You know, the Greens have been pretty clear they're not going to support the NDP government on their changes to LNG. The legislation that was introduced by the NDP this week is going to repeal some of the Liberal government's uh, LNG tax framework. There was a income tax for LNG companies that they were going to have to pay, which ironically the NDP voted in favor of when they were in opposition. That was part of their push-pull, you know, belief on LNG: like it, don't like it, criticize you, not going to criticize. It was a very complicated position. And Andrew Weaver, <laughs> to his credit, I mean, he delivered a barn burner of a speech in the legislature this week, more than an hour long, in full flight, 110%, volume up to 11, Andrew Weaver, (laughs) and he produced 20 pages of quotes from new Democrat MLAs when they were in opposition, dumping on LNG, dumping on the liberal plan, calling it a sweetheart giveaway to multinational companies, uh, you know, saying the liberals gave away the farm. And here's the NDP now, giving away two farms yeah. because they've not only got rid of the liberal tax plan, but they put a sweeter tax plan in place with more deals, more giveaways, more uh, foregone revenue than the liberals ever dreamed of. And Weaver just hoisted them uh, up in the House. It was quite a speech by the Green Leader. It's classic kind of hypocritical flip-flop politics that we sometimes, well, quite often see in British Columbia. It's kind of the positions just flip back and forth and the party names change. And it all depends on who's in power. Like, you know, if the Liberals are in power and they do something on LNG, well, the NDP are going to say it's terrible. But then when the NDP get into power and they're the ones who are lucky enough to get this big LNG Canada project across the finish line, well, suddenly now it's wonderful. And they are giving a sweeter deal to the industry than the Liberals. I mean, maybe that's the most hypocritical part of of, of it of all. Because they, they said, like you said, the liberals, they said, were just giving away the the moon and the stars and the sun to this industry, and these guys are given all of that, and plus all the dark matter in the universe too. You know, <laughs> so it is hypocritical. Weaver has at least been consistent on it, and I'm not surprised to see him kind of unloading on the NDP. He does have a lot of those smoking gun quotes from back in the day when the NDP were just fiercely critical of this industry when the when the liberals were in power. And he was tough. He was really tough, though, on them. I mean, he was really calling them out. And at one point, he turned over to Lana Popham, who is the uh, agriculture minister, right? Yep. Yep. And 
who was fiercely opposed to LNG in opposition. And he looked at her and said, how do you sleep at night? You know, so he was pretty nasty sometimes. But you know what? I mean, that's just kind of politics. And this is a huge uh, project, the LNG Canada project, right? Yeah, $40 billion. $40 billion. I mean, this is like the biggest project, not only in British Columbia history, but in Canadian history. And this thing is manna from heaven for Horgan. I mean, here's a guy who is doing pretty well as premier right now. One of the vulnerabilities of the NDP historically has been, you guys are bad for the economy, and you're gonna, you're just going to put a chill over the investment climate in this province. Well, guess what? He just delivered the biggest project ever in the province in Canadian history. So you know that they're going to get repetitive strain injury from patting themselves in the back for it. But they're going to have to take their lumps for it, too, because they certainly whistled a different tune in opposition. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Weaver just tore down uh, Energy Minister Michelle Mungal, uh, Agriculture Minister Lana Popham, Environment Minister George Heyman, and even Premier John Horgan himself with some of these quotes, just exposing what he called, you know, the the NDP's confusing position on LNG, which is fair enough. You know, those of us who listen to the NDP in opposition um, you could come away feeling like they didn't actually support LNG. And they're quick to say, no, 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 no. We support it. Just not the one Pacific Northwest LNG right. project. Yeah. But the idea, maybe, but not giving it away, but only for a fair return. And and Weaver pointed out that Christy Clark had all of these conditions on oil pipelines, the five great conditions. The NDP have four great conditions on LNG and natural gas. They're very similar. They don't have any metrics, you know, the cleanest in the world and all of these type of things. It's basically the same thing from a different government, only in this case, the deal is sweeter. And one of the things that we saw in the legislation that we didn't know before was a 3% natural gas tax credit, which is going to be given by the New Democrats on top of all of the other things, including uh, not having to pay uh, sales tax up front. I think it's like a $600 million uh, exemption that gets repaid over 20 years without interest. Um, You know, exemptions on the carbon tax because of the world-class, world-leading emission standard, all, all these sorts of things that I have a feeling if the Liberals uh, had had managed to get that through and LNG Canada had become a reality on this framework, you would have the New Democrats in opposition just irate. Yes. Irate. And I remember, I remember John Horgan <laughs> once saying, Shell, Shell is a big, massive corporation. It does not need handouts from this right. government. Well, right. now you have Shell at the head of this LNG Canada getting a massive handout from government. So it was... But as you point out, it's a win in the end for the New Democrats. Oh, yeah, they'll take their lumps. Even though they got to eat a lot of crow to get there. That's right. And if you want another example of just how stark the kind of the conversion has been here, if you remember back when, remember when Christy Clark was campaigning heavily in favor of LNG? I mean, she won that big upset election way back in 2013, largely on her LNG promises. And she laid it on thick, right? She said, oh, basically the streets are going to be paved with gold. And unfortunately for her and the Liberals, they weren't able to deliver any of these big projects while they were in power. And the NDP were just lucky to be there when the, when one did get across the finish line. But if you remember back when Clark was premier, one of the things that she said in the face of all this criticism from the NDP, uh, particularly on the environment, by the way, the NDP were very critical of the environmental impact of, this, of the project, these big projects. And she said, look, we're actually going to do the planet a favor by developing BC liquefied natural gas because we're going to sell it to China and as a result 
China will burn less coal,、mm-hmm. which is a dirtier fuel. I mean, you get about basically double the greenhouse gas emissions from coal per unit of energy than you do and get an LNG. So LNG is cleaner burning fuel. So her point was. They'll burn less coal. We'll sell them our LNG. This is actually good for the planet. We're actually helping to save the environment. And the NDP were absolutely merciless going after her on that, saying this is ridiculous. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Michelle Mangal, I remember, was fiercely critical of her on that. George Hayman, the environment minister, now just ripping ripping her apart for this, saying it's still a dirty fossil fuel. Well. Now the shoes on the other foot, and the NDP are the ones delivering this big project, and they're making the exact same argument. You know, now they're saying, "Oh, this is great. We're going to sell this stuff to China, and it's going to help the planet." So there's no shame in this kind of stuff when when it comes to these sort of reversible talking points. When you're in power, it's all good. You guys are the heroes. You're going to take credit. When you're in opposition, you just it's all slings and arrows at the at the other side. So I think you know. Weaver's right to call them out on it. Yeah, but Weaver himself is in a bit of a difficult position on this because as much political points as he can score by attacking the NDP on this,、uh, mainly on on the idea of LNG is not compatible with meeting the climate targets for BC. It makes it a lot harder to reduce、uh, emissions when you add this giant emission-producing、uh, LNG plant. He's still supportive of the government's climate plan, so.、Yeah. LNG can't be done because it'll blow our climate targets, but the Greens still support the climate plan, which includes LNG. And so everyone eventually twists themselves into a pretzel to get behind this project in a weird sort of way. Even though the Greens don't support it, they support the climate plan that includes it from the NDP, and they're still very happy about that. So it kind of, in some ways, it almost undermines their own argument. You can't do this and reduce pollution. But we're in favor of a climate plan that does it and reduces pollution. That's kind of a hard circle to square as well. Yeah, because one of the things that Weaver said this week is the NDP want to have their cake and eat it too, as he said. They want to claim to have this world-leading climate action plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. At the same time, they're bringing in this massive LNG facility. So he calls that. Having your cake and eating it too. Well, he's actually the same way because Weaver said he supported the climate plan, even though it does have this. It includes the construction of this big LNG plant because the climate plan is so great, so awesome that they can do it. They they can build this plant and still meet their greenhouse gas reduction targets. He says it's going to make it more difficult, but he says they can still do it. Now that's with what they call a two train. Plant and a train and an LNG facility refers to the the big machines that convert the gas into liquid form. And the plan for Shell and their other partners in this consortium is to start with a two-train LNG plant and possibly expand it later. Now, we'll see, when you drill down in this with Weaver, he will say if they go bigger than two a two-train plant. Then I'm going to be really, really mad because then we won't be able to make our meet our greenhouse gas reduction targets for sure. But with just a two-train plant, we can still do it. So you're right. I mean, he's got his own, you know, contortionist position on it as well. Not to mention the Clean BC plan relies heavily on power produced from Site C, which the Greens oppose oppose as well. But anyways, eventually everyone can get around to supporting one thing or another、yeah. in the legislature. <laughs> Um, but it is interesting. So this is going to be a series of votes. Now we've already seen, I think, 
three votes on this. There was first reading. There was uh, Andrew Weaver had a hoist motion to delay the LNG legislation six months, and then he had some type of reasoned amendment. Uh, it ended up being the Greens by themselves, the three Greens versus, I think, uh, 80 New Democrats and Liberals together. So every vote's going to be 80 to 3? Uh, that About seems to be, the, depending on who's there and who's not there. So yeah. th- it's a good political position for the Greens to be in in, yeah. a, in a way that they can point to their supporters. And we've already seen the fundraising notes go out for the Greens. Look at us standing alone. We're the only ones against big pollution, the only ones yeah. against LNG. you got to get behind the Greens. And that way it... it, it works for them sure. quite well. But, uh, you know, the Liberals are going along with this as they as they have to, in a way, as the, as the uh, mothers and fathers of the LNG movement. They've got to kind of see this baby all the way through. Yeah. They, can't, they can't vote against it now. So, no. the, But in the end, the Greens end up in a pretty good position. I thought it was a very good week for the Greens, uh, very good for Andrew Weaver, because the Greens also had a big role to play in ride hailing. Yes. And we got uh, the report from the legislative committee, the all-party committee, that was supposed to study ride hailing regulations. And they were looking at issues of of um, the cap on uh, licenses for ride hailing, the type of driver's license you're supposed to get, um, the geographic boundaries that may or may not exist, that exist for taxis right now, should they exist for ride hailing. And they issued their report uh, to the legislature, I had to laugh in advance of this report, Smitty, because it reminds me of this old the old peanuts uh, trick where Lucy puts the football out for Charlie Brown and Charlie Brown goes to kick it and she pulls <laughs> it away at the last minute. Yeah. This is a committee on ride hailing that's already produced one report that the government took a look at and said, yeah, that's great, thanks for coming out, we'll validate your parking, get lost. <laughs> Didn't really implement what was in the report. Right. Then the government got into a bit of a jam on this and said, hey, committee, can you can you research some more issues for us we'd really like i promise we'll take you seriously this time the football's in place don't worry go give it a kick and the committee goes out and they produce this report and at the last minute claire trevena uh you know like an hour after the report comes out says thanks for coming out terrific glad to hear you validate your parking we are not going to listen to you on the one of the biggest issues in the report the class four versus class five license which i'll get you to explain the sex midi but sure also and we're going we're gonna to play a clip here of her. I just want to listen to – this is her response to what are you going to do about the other 10 of 11 recommendations by this committee? Have a listen to what Transportation Minister Claire Trevena says. I, I think we've got to – we have to be flexible. I think it's very clear in, in the uh, time we've been working on this and with the committee's report, which is really very helpful, that there needs to be flexibility. People expect that of us. Uh, I will not move on Class 4 licenses. I think people's safety is paramount and that. All right, got to be flexible. You will notice no. in there that although she rules out class four licenses, we're not going to move to, to uh, we're not going to move on the idea of class five licenses. We're going to keep class four licenses, even though that's not the recommendation of the committee. She doesn't really endorse any of the other recommendations of the committee. No caps on pricing, no caps on license numbers, and no borders, which are key for the ride-hailing industry to work. There are recommendations by the committee, and the minister's just kind of saying, well, you know, be we'll, think about that. we'll think about that. Okay. We'll think about that. Yeah. Maybe the football's half in place there. What did you make of all of this, Smitty? Well, you know, this has been going on for so long. I mean, we've been talking about this ride-sharing stuff for seven years in British Columbia. We still have the ignominious distinction of being the Vancouver is the largest city in North America. still doesn't have these services. Uh, have you ever used ride-hailing, Rob, outside of BC? I haven't, no. I, I've used it in 
Seattle, Toronto, New York, and I just got back from a family vacation in Mexico where we used it every day. And Uber is a, is a, an awesome service. And for people who have from who have traveled outside of British Columbia and they've used it, they know how convenient it is, and 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 cost effective as well. And it's the reason why so many people want it in British Columbia. They want it for the service it provides, and they also a lot of people want the opportunity to be an Uber driver and making some extra money. And both of both of the major parties in our province have been obedient, however, to a very powerful taxi lobby that has successfully kept them out of this market for a long time. But the pressure is built and built and built, and until finally the government has said, well, "Okay, we're going to we're going to allow it." But they originally were talking about so many operational restrictions that Uber and Lyft, the two main companies, were saying we might not even be able to work with this, and we might not set up here at all. This report this week was really interesting because it's an NDP majority on this committee, and so there was some anticipation it was going to be a report that, again, was um, very punishing to the uh, Uber and Lyft and continuing to help the taxi industry. But to the great, uh, I think, surprise, relief, and, and happiness of, of these com- of the ride-sharing companies, uh, it was a pretty good report for them and recommended that it be pretty much wide-open ride-hailing. If mm-hmm. the government accepts these recommendations, so that's kind of a surprise in some ways. On the class four, class five, the way that works is uh, most people in British Columbia, if you're just driving your car, you got a class five license. You and I both got a class five license. That's the standard op- driving license. A class four license is required to be a taxi driver, be a truck driver, for example. It requires extra training, requires a medical exam. Uh, you've got to take a different sort of driver test, and it costs uh, money to actually take the course to get one of these licenses. I think it's like 500 bucks and some time to get one of these licenses. So the industry was fiercely opposed to this Class 4. Trevena, as you heard there, is saying we're going to insist on the Class 4, but everything else is still up for discussion. I don't think that the Class 4 license is necessarily a deal killer for Uber and Lyft. I mean, if the government sticks to their guns on that and they say you have to get this ex- this special license to be an Uber driver, I don't think Uber and Lyft are going to go away. I think they'll have to play along with it. And I think it will actually still my, – my personal thought on it is I think it would still be a successful ride-hailing system I- even if you do require this special license because I think there's enough people out there who want to drive for these companies that they'll make the effort to go and get this special license. The, the real question is the caps and the operational boundaries and whether the government goes with that. When are we going to find out about that, I guess, in the weeks ahead here? Well, it looks like we're going to get what is essentially the rules in a cabinet order, a regulation, by the summer. And then we will have, the theoretically, the market open by September, the minister has said, for ride-hailing companies to apply. Somewhere along the line, ICBC has to develop an insurance product. Uh, which is probably going to be some type of per kilometer insurance, or which is what the the industry wants. I, I, I agree with you. I think that if class four license versus class five license is the last sticking point, you would see Uber and Lyft come into BC. But yeah, it's hard to tell from the transportation minister's response whether she actually believes the committee on the caps, the boundaries, the prices. Those all. are the key issues. And I once again am left to wonder what the heck is Claire Trevena doing on this file? I mean, this is the, what, third round of consultations? We had consultations. We had a HERA report on taxis. We And the HERA uh, consulting uh, group was making recommendations to the ride-hailing committee that the government's ignoring as well. So yep. uh, we've had two committees. We've had almost 20 months of this thing. 
are we not in a position to to get this going? Why is the government still unclear on what regulations it's going to put in place? I I I, I think part of the reason. Uh, you know, a little behind the scenes uh, inside baseball for you. But I think part of the reason is the premier's chief of staff, uh, Jeff Meigs, yeah. who was a former Vancouver city councilor who's up to his eyeballs in the taxi file in Vancouver. Very pro-taxi. Pro-taxi. And, and one of the reasons that, um, you know, Vancouver was such a taxi nightmare is because of all the conflicting rules and authorities and the city council's ability to micromanage uh, taxi licenses and then the passenger transportation branch and then the provincial government and those that kind of just red tape suffocation nightmare is one of the recommendations that the Hera report made for the taxi industry get rid of that get rid of that stop letting municipalities mess around with this figure it out and, and make it clear for everybody and I think Jeff Meigs has his hands all over this file I think Claire Trevena comes out and says nothing because she's waiting for him to figure it out uh, from the premier's office before she ever says anything at all. And uh, I'm not sure that's working so well for them this far in, this delay that they have. I, I don't know. I think the public's getting a little upset about it. We did ask Premier John Horgan that question. It came up in his weekly scrum smitty. Let's hear what he says, and then okay. you can riff on this. This is John Horgan. Uh, sort of asked about the ride-hailing issue this week. We want to make sure that the traveling public is safe. We want to make sure whatever product emerges from the ride-hailing legislation and the new product, uh, insurance product being developed by ICBC is there to protect the traveling public. I think most British Columbians agree with that position. Ride-hailing is coming this year. Uh, the former government had half a decade to bring it forward and did not. Uh, we've had uh, 18 months and we're almost there. It's coming. Yeah. It's coming. Well, you know, when when he... They always trot out this line, we got to make sure it's safe. I mean, this is kind of the biggest red herring in the whole thing. Because the government keeps saying, oh, we got to make sure people are safe. No one is disputing that. Like, no one is saying that you shouldn't have the strictest uh, safety standards in the world in this industry. you got to have a, a clean driving record. You have to have a mandatory criminal background check. You have to have a safe vehicle. You have to have full insurance. That is not in dispute. They keep using this safety thing, I think, to try and justify to the public the long delays. I think what's really going on behind the scenes is a fight over are they going to let Uber and Lyft come in here and damage the taxi industry or not? And because there are some MLAs who live in, who are representing ridings, particularly in Surrey, that are very closely contested ridings, where the taxi industry is seen as a very powerful vote delivering lobby. And uh, I'm talking about guys, you know, guys like Jagrup Brar and, and, another, and other MLAs who are really kind of hanging Harry by... Baines. Harry Baines. is another, another good example. Um, these, are, these are people who are feeling a lot of heat from taxis. Don't let Uber and Lyft in here. And so I think there's a big fight going on internally, and that's why we're seeing these delays. But once again, that's another... Like, we talked about the NDP's position before the election on LNG be, being confusing. Their position on ride-hailing and taxis before the election and during the election was very confusing. Yeah, they're trying to have it both ways. We're going to save the taxi yeah. industry. The Liberals have yeah. got it all wrong. You know, we're going to make sure you keep your jobs. I, I, I remember Peter Fassbender, the former, one of the former cabinet ministers in the Liberal government of Surrey MLA, just getting roasted on the campaign trail in the last election by the NDP candidates in Surrey over ride-hailing, saying that he's going to kill the taxi industry. They rallied the taxi uh, drivers and the associations behind the New Democrats. Yeah. We're going to save yeah. you. So you're right. They're, they're in the a, a same problem they are in LNG, and they, they, were, they wanted to 
please everyone in the opposition, and now they have to roll back on it in government. And it's a very difficult bit of crow for them to eat, and it's going <laughs> to cost them votes. That being said, the government's clearly come up with this um, head start for the taxi industry through what is being called Cater, which yeah. is this ride-hailing, light-esque, almost version of ride-hailing specifically for uh, Vancouver taxis. And, and they've given the Vancouver Taxi Association a bunch of licenses for new taxis, which they the taxi associations then, then turned around and given those to Cater. And they're yeah. operating a fake ride-hailing service that's about to start in Vancouver using taxi licenses. And the yeah. hope, I think, is, and the government's hope is as well, is if the taxi industry can get a six-month head start on Uber and Lyft with a fake version of ride-hailing, that maybe they become the dominant force in BC and the taxi drivers still have jobs and ride-hailing and taxis still become status quo. I think there's a very... That's like creating your own bulletin board system and hoping that Facebook doesn't come in and just wipe you, <laughs> wipe you off the face of the earth. I think there's zero hope that Cater will be the dominant ride-hailing force in British Columbia, but the NDP government's kind of tried to split that hair and give the taxi industry that out with that head start right now. For yeah, I mean, that, I think that was the plan, was to let this Cater app get up and running, which the profits flow to the taxi companies from this for this app, and call that made in BC ride hailing, and then declare victory. We've we've delivered ride hailing for you. It's called Cater, and that Uber and Lyft would be faced with these operational restrictions, like these caps and the number of drivers and these operational boundaries, and the government setting their prices. And Uber and Lyft would throw their hands up and say, "We're out of here because we can't work this way." And that would be the ideal situation. So that was the plan. And then the NDP declares victory. You've got your ride sharing. It's not our fault. Uber and Lyft don't want to operate here. And then the taxi industry continues to rule. That's the plan. I don't think it's going to work, though. And I think you're sort of seeing that f- foreshadowed in this this report this week because there's so much pressure on the government to deliver these to finally deliver these services that are available everywhere else around the world. You know, and some of the pressure is coming from really interesting places. Like in the the hearings that this committee held. They heard from TransLink, mm-hmm. who who their their president te- t- testified you should allow ride hailing uh, because we think it'll be good for mobility. And the NDP MLAs on this committee were kind of sh- fidgeting in their seats, going, "Oh, why is this guy supporting ride hailing? Is, isn't it going to hurt the tran? You know, we want people to take transit instead." And the TransLink president just said, "Look, this is the modern world. We got to get with this." The Vancouver Police Department testified and said, this is a public safety issue. We don't want people driving drunk. We want them to get home safely. You've got to deliver these services. Um, The Competition Bureau of Canada uh, came in and said, very powerful federal agency said, you know, you can't bring in these operational caps and and these restrictions. You've got to open this up and allow allow competition, free, free market competition to deliver quality services to the public. So a lot of pressure building on from a lot of different sources on the government to allow these uh, allow these services to finally operate in BC, and I think you're starting to see the kind of the the cookie crumble here, and that they're going to have to allow it. That's that's my kind of read on it right now. I think you're right, and also to go back to our original point about the Greens, there's a Green presence on this committee, and I think without the Greens, you could have had 
the NDP dominate this committee and basically turn out a hollow, useless yeah. report right. that Claire Trevena could have then said, hey, look, everyone agrees with me, and uh, we don't have to do any of this stuff. But the Greens tilted the balance on this. And, yeah. they, and that's why on the Class 4 versus Class 5 issue, the report comes out and says a majority of MLAs on the committee recommended um, that you go the route of Class 5 licenses and not Class 4. And that's because the Greens and the Liberals are sitting there together and they're able to make that argument and make that point over top of the New Democrat MLAs who are trying to run flack for their own transportation minister and premier's chief of staff and give them what they want. So without the Greens, I think, on this committee, the Liberals would have been in a much tougher position. A lot of people don't have a lot of time for their opinions on a lot of things at the legislature right now. But with the Green support, you get a report that comes out that pretty much matches what most of the people in testifying in the industry wanted here. So yep. another big, I, I don't want to say a win for the Greens, but another yep. big reminder that their presence does actually change a lot here yep. in the legislature. On that file, I think it has. The other issue that's coming up, which uh, will be big in play next week, uh, is going to be changes to the auto insurance system in British Columbia. Smitty, we've been talking about this for months now, the dumpster fire of financial losses at ICBC, as Attorney General David Eby puts it, losing, I think they're on track to lose almost, what, two, three billion dollars the next, in the last year and this year, added up together. Um, there's tons of pressure on ICBC. So one of the big changes that starts on Monday, April the 1st, is a cap on pain and suffering claims for minor injury crashes of $5,500. So if you're in a minor injury crash, so that's like a sprain or whiplash or even controversially a concussion yep. but uh you know injuries that fall short of a broken bone or major trauma you don't go to court uh automatically anymore to to get a settlement you have a cap of $5,500 and you're going to try and negotiate with ICBC or you're going to go through this new civil resolution tribunal uh to try and resolve a settlement and uh, and go that way first and it's a big change to the insurance system which is being used as all sorts of political fodder from all sides of the legislature, all the MLAs playing politics with it. Let's hear what Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson has to say on this and kind of the larger issue of changes to the auto insurance sector in B.C. Under John Horgan and the NDP, life is getting to be more and more expensive. This is an ICBC invoice for $8,040, which is after a young person had a single accident and their bill went up from $3,700 to $8,000. We can't carry on like this. Let's get choice in auto insurance. Let's give consumers and drivers the chance to pick the coverage they want so that they don't get a bill for $8,000. It's time for a change. All right, Smitty, so you wrote about this this week, this example of some type of driver the Liberals are... Uh, raising um, the case of. What did you make of what Andrew Wilkinson had to say there? This has um, got a lot of traction for Wilkinson on social media, kind of good and bad. A lot of people supporting him and others kind of mocking him for citing this example. Now, he says that ICBC is broken and essentially we should be looking at private insurance, so which is an interesting issue that it could be big in the next election. Uh, and so what he said was, he held up a, an ICBC invoice, and he said, this is a bill from ICBC for a young driver who got into a single accident and got a premium bill, renewal bill from ICBC, for $8,040 for one year's insurance. Can you imagine getting your ICBC renewal bill in the, in the mail and seeing 8000 bucks at the bottom of the page? 
So he is saying, this is why the system's broken and we got to have more options, i.e. private insurance. Now, here's the thing about this. I, I kind of dug into this this week. I wanted to find out more about this person who got the $8,000 ICBC bill. The liberals released the bill and blacked out the driver's name. The liberals told me that this driver has been in contact with them about this, but she does not want to be interviewed by the media. She does not want to be identified. But they did provide a little bit more information. So they say this is a, a woman in her late 20s. She lives in Vancouver. She drives a Volkswagen Tiguan. Whoa. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of a nice car. I think they go around 40000 bucks new. Not exactly a hot rod racer. But that's the thing. Like, it's a nice car, um, but it's not a James Bond class kind of Maserati <laughs> or whatever, right? Because like, when, th- when you hear 8000 bucks, the first thing I think of, like, is like a, a street racer racking up his Lamborghini or something in a street race. Yeah. Charge him 8000 bucks or probably a lot more for insurance. But this is a, a, a young woman who has, according to the Liberals, one accident in which she was found at fault. That's important. But they're saying 8000 bucks. Come on, that's too much money. Now, I tried to get more information about this because there's some missing details here. Well, tell me exactly what happened in this accident. Well, the Liberals are saying it was a slow-speed accident. She rear-ended another car in a slow-speed uh, fender bender at an intersection. Okay, well, was she talking on her phone? Was she charged with distracted driving? Has she racked up a whole bunch of speeding tickets? Uh, was there anybody injured uh, in this accident? Was she found 100% at fault or only partially at fault? A lot of these details are missing, and I we tried to I tried to get other other reporters tried to get more details in this case that Wilkinson is citing everywhere. A lot of the details are not forthcoming so far. But when you talk to Wilkinson about it, he says, I don't, he says, I don't know all the details myself. All I know is this is an example of why people need more choice in auto insurance. Maybe if this person got an ICBC bill for 8000 bucks, why shouldn't she be allowed to phone up a private auto, auto insurance company and get a, a, you know, a competing quote? So that's what he's saying. So... This is interesting, isn't it? Because now the liberals are sort of toying with the idea of private auto insurance. And do you see that as a big issue in BC? I think it could be. Well, first off, I agree with you. I don't. It's pretty tough to make anything out of this example without the details. I yeah. have a hard... And the real problem, and the liberals will gloss over this in their example, is that we haven't changed the insurance system yet. The changes haven't come into effect. And just because the cap starts on Monday... The rate review changes and how you're a risky driver and how your premiums calculated, those don't start until September. So this bill would have existed under the previous liberal, liberal government as well. It's not like... It would have been 8000 bucks even when the yeah, liberals it's, were It's not like David yeah. Eby cocked this scheme up and it's suddenly, yeah. you know... Anyways, that aside, um, y- there's clearly a movement going on to push for private insurance in British Columbia. And we saw the other week the Private Insurance Bureau... The lobby group for private insurance companies produced a report comparing BC drivers to Alberta driver rates and saying if you were a driver of a certain car in the lower mainland uh, and you were to insure that same car with the same driving record in Calgary, for example, you get a much better rate because in Alberta, you have private companies competing. And in British Columbia, you have ICBC with a monopoly on basic insurance. Right. That also sounds great, and the Liberals are clearly behind that idea, but the more you look at Alberta's situation, they also have a cap on minor injury claims. Yes. 
very similar to BC's. Um, they're in a mess in Alberta. And their problem in Alberta is that the private insurance companies are facing the same pressures ICBC is on, on crash rates and, the, you know, the cost of repairing these technologically advanced cars that we have nowadays. And, the, and, and because they don't have a public auto insurer, the private companies are trying to find ways to give the boot to high-risk drivers. So they're mandated yes. to give them some insurance, but every way they can figure out not to insure someone for anything they have any discretion over, including whether you pay your premium up front or you get to have payment options every month, they find ways to do that. So you have a whole whack of people, up to 40% of the Alberta uh, driving population right now, according to some estimates, stuck trying to get insurance and getting massive uh, bills and all sorts of nickel and diming going on. And David Eby is saying, look, I mean, is that what we want? Do we want Alberta's model? How dare the private insurance lobby, which is pushing the Alberta government to raise their annual cap on rates, because Alberta has a cap on rates, they're fighting to get higher insurance premiums in Alberta. And then they turn around and compare BC's model and they say, no, 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 it's still cheaper in Calgary, even though in Calgary... They're claiming it's a crisis. I don't think... I think when you start putting the numbers together, um, the argument that the Liberals are making and the private insurance sector is making falls apart pretty fast. But it's the only argument the Liberals seem to have. They're to blame for the mess at ICBC. And now they've figured out a way to get out from under that by saying, no, no, private competition is the solution. That's what's going to save you a lot of money. I still don't understand, Smitty, and tell me if you figured this out what exactly Andrew Wilkinson is calling for Mm -hmm. in his comments. He's talking about a review. He's talking about competition. But when you ask him, does that mean getting rid of ICBC's monopoly? He says, well, no, no, we're just talking about reviewing and competition. We're just spitballing here. I I don't. If you were to ask me to write down the liberal position on ICBC in one sentence, I wouldn't be able to do it because I don't actually know what they're saying on it, which is, I guess, the genius of their position. Well, uh, you know, one of the the quick talking points and comebacks that a guy like David Eby has on this is that the Liberals had 16 years in power to bring in private auto insurance if they wanted to, and of course they didn't do it. No. I remember Gordon Campbell, when he was Premier, took a deep dive into private auto insurance and decided not to go there. It was just too fraught with peril. So this kind of a third rail of BC politics has been private auto insurance for a long time, and there's a, there's a reason the Liberals didn't go there when they were in power. But I think a guy like Wilkinson now... And he's probably got some advisors talking in his ear as well, saying this is potentially a good issue for us as a wedge issue that's going to clearly differentiate us from John Horgan and the NDP. If we can convince British Columbians that if we can bring in, allow private insurance to sell basic auto insurance in this in, in this province and give people a choice, that it's going to be good for you and that you actually might save money on your auto insurance. So this is, I think they're warming, they're certainly test driving this this these talking points out right now, and it could emerge as, I think, a key uh, election issue. And Wilkinson needs an issue right now because, you know, Wilkinson's been kind of stumbling and bumbling a bit over the last couple of weeks that we've talked about before. We had the wacky renters, right, where you had the, the line about, oh, isn't, isn't renting wacky part of life that he got roasted for and had to apologize over that. He had a very stumbling uh, position for a couple of days on interest-free student loans, stumbling all over that. Mm. He gave a speech. Was it the West Vancouver Yacht Club? <laughs> right? Like, talk about bad optics, giving, you know, giving speeches at the Yacht Club. So this is a guy who's having, having problems. 
and he's he's looking somewhere to get a good issue and good traction to get the public behind him and i think they're looking at this thing and at looking at auto insurance and thinking maybe this is the one there have been some there's been some opinion polling done on this now albeit commissioned by the insurance bureau of canada which represents the private auto, uh, private insurance companies in the country but there was one poll in particular that said that 80% of british columbians said they want more choice in auto insurance i.e. private insurance I think the liberals are looking at those numbers and thinking, like, maybe this is an issue we can spin into a positive one. But you're right about the the policy position on it. It, it is unclear about precisely what the deliverable would be on it. It's a good move for the liberals now because it they're begin, testing it out. It begins a discussion that's really going to take off in September. Yeah, you know, the caps on on accidents are one thing, and I think that will affect a certain number of people who get in an accident starting April first. But in September, ICBC changes the way it determines your risk and your rates and your insurance premiums. That is going to tick off almost everybody in the province. Little things like how often do you get that quote-unquote free crash where you have a crash and it doesn't jack your rates up through the roof, that's changing. Um, You know, whether you want to put your teenage kids on the family vehicle to have them learn to drive, your insurance is going to go through the roof because that teenage kid is now deemed a risk. Risky, yeah. And your insurance rates go through the roof. There there is going to be a huge moment of sober uh, thought by the electorate and possible backlash in September when the new rate premiums come in and your rates go up. And despite the NDP telling you that actually you're going to save money on rates – Rates are also increasing by 6.5%. So you're not really going to save anything, even if you're saving money on the new rate premiums. You're still going to pay more. You're You're still going to pay more. You're still going to pay less more. And so for the Liberals to set (laughs) out less (laughs) less more. Less more. (laughs) For the Liberals to set out this path right now of, of, you know, discontent, I think it'll really take off in the fall, and maybe they do pave the way for an actual issue. And those issues are going to land on David Eby's head He's the architect of the new rate review. No more blaming the liberals when your premiums go up after September. That's the NDP's premium policy. And so I guess the liberals see in that something they can make out of it. They do. Will it make for better rates for you in the long term? Probably not. But it's great political fodder. And you're going to be angry at ICBC. And so you're going to believe that it would be better if I could just have five insurance companies competing for my business. And the, But the thing you're not going to realize is you are more risky as a driver than you believe you are. Yeah. And once the public gets a view of how risky they actually are under these new guidelines, I think people stop and go, uh-oh. Yeah. I didn't realize that my one at-fault crash eight years ago is still going to count against me. Well, pfft. It is, and in, in, in a private insurance world, it's going to count even more. So yeah. those are big issues we're going to be talking about in the weeks and months ahead. One of the examples, Smitty, you and I have been talking about of issues that have been great for the NDP politically for a long time now, 18, 20 months, that are going to turn on them at the midway point ICBC. of their mandate. ICBC is an yeah. example of that. Because the dumpster fire, because, you know, EB's gotten good reviews, I think, on his handling of the, the dumpster fire. Look at the the amount of money ICBC is looting, uh, losing right now. They're losing $3 million a day, and they blame it on the liberals. This is mismanagement by the liberals, and that was a pretty convincing argument he had there. But as time goes by, and these guys have been in power for a year and a half, and, you know, we're getting close, you know, getting on to two years, the public is going to start saying, well, what have you done for me lately, you know, and maybe this mess is partly you're, you're to blame too. So I think the liberals are looking at that. I'm thinking maybe this is a political opportunity here for us. I looked at a poll the other day. This is the one that showed 80% support for private auto insurance options in, in British Columbia. That was a poll 
that was done by Maple Leaf Strategies was the name of the polling company, which I was unfamiliar with, so I did a little digging on them. One of their partners is a guy named Dimitri Pantazopoulos, mm-hmm. who is a key liberal strategist who uh, was very close to Christy Clark and was a bit of a liberal mastermind for a long time for the BC Liberals. So I think that, you know, I thought it was an interesting name to see in that poll. Uh, I think a guy like Wilkinson is doing a deep dive in these polling numbers. And one of the, that poll, by the way, said that it broke down support for public auto or private auto insurance by party preference. And it said if you were a liberal supporter, you were a big uh, supporter of a private option for insurance. Green Party supporter was also good. But also NDP voters. It was something like 75 nine if i recall correctly maybe 75 percent or 74 percent mid 70s i think of ndp voters like the idea of private auto insurance option so i think wilkinson and the liberals are looking at this saying if we can flip some votes if we could get some people to vote for us on this this is good for us and maybe it's going to help us get back into power yeah it's a we'll be watching that issue very carefully in for the sure oh yeah weeks and months ahead um make sure you subscribe to the podcast on apple Podcasts. there's also rss feeds online that uh for your other podcast players uh follow us on the tweeters and uh <laughs> read uh, mike smith's columns in the province and uh, my work in the vancouver sun uh every day and uh we will see you next week with yep. all that's going on in bc politics you bet talk to you then